Hey, listen, uh, turn with me once more to the book of Revelation. Uh, Today we're continuing our series about the seven churches that are being addressed in this book. And today we're going to be looking at the church in the city of Pergamum. The church in Pergamum is being addressed in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So that'll be our text, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. You know, one of the the realities of life that I have come to appreciate more and more over the years is how every household has its rituals. I'm fascinated by this, that under every roof, there are those well-worn paths. Right? There are those certain things that happen at certain times every day that are so common, so routine, so predictable that they become an ingrained habit in the life of that household. Now, I don't know what those things are at your house, but at our house, one of the daily rituals that is looked forward to the most is snack time. For our kids, snack time is king. It's everything. When the clock strikes 1 p.m., you better believe that the refrigerator and the kitchen cabinets are going to be pillaged with great fury. And one of the snacks that makes a frequent appearance during snack time at our house is trail mix. Our kids love trail mix. It's a big hit with them, like it's up there with fruit snacks and granola bars. Because one of the things our kids love about trail mix is that you're probably going to get a little bit of candy. One handful of trail mix, if you're lucky, it can yield like a half dozen M&Ms. But you also have to be careful, right? Because the very next handful of trail mix can have a bunch of raisins in it. And who in their right mind gets excited about raisins? Oh, really? Okay. We have some sick people here today. Raisins ruin oatmeal cookies. Just saying. Oh, my. I didn't know this would be so controversial. (laughs) But this is the case, right? Because trail mix really does come as advertised. It really is a mix. It's a mix where you're probably going to find some things that you want, but maybe you're also going to find some things that you really don't. In the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church we're going to look at today was a mix. This church, like pretty much all of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, with the exception of maybe one, this church in Pergamum was a mixture of things that were commendable, and it it was also a mixture of things that were catastrophic. There were things about this church that were pleasing to Jesus, but there were also things about it that he could not stand. So let's read what Jesus has to say to this church about this mixture, and let's find out what Jesus wants to say to us this morning, because this mixture was not just something that was Unique to the church in Pergamum. This mixture 
is also found here in this congregation. And most likely this mixture is also found within each and every one of us this morning. So let's read these verses together. Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. So what is it that explains this mixture in the church of Pergamum? What is it that explains this mixture in us? I mean, sometimes, let's be honest, it can be hard to know what we should expect from the church. Because the very idea of the church is that it is comprised of people who are a new creation, right? This is what we're told in the book of 2 Corinthians, that we are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so what this means for us today is that you can look around this room and you can see that this room is chock full of new life that has been given by Jesus. But even though the church of God is genuinely new, We are not yet completely new. There's plenty of that old stuff hanging around. Yes, in Christ, the old things have passed away. But sometimes, sometimes those old things revive. And they rear their ugly head. And so I think it's it's worth asking today, why is that? What explains why this happens? Well, there are plenty of answers we could offer, but I think that behind just about any answer that you or I could come up with, there's really just one ultimate answer. The reason why there's often a mix of things commendable and things catastrophic in every church is because we still live in a present evil age. This is what Paul says at the beginning of the book of Galatians. In Galatians Chapter 1, verse 4, he tells us that Christ came to deliver us from this present evil age. 
Man, that's good news, right? Praise God, we are delivered by Jesus. We are genuinely delivered by him from belonging to the ways of this sinful world. But at the same time, on this very morning, we still had to wake up in this world. Right? We still had to wake up in a world that remains full of darkness. We woke up in an environment where the world, the flesh, and the devil conspired together to do their very worst. And all you need to do is look around you and you quickly realize that this is the case. This age that we are living in, it really is a present evil age. And so as the church of Jesus, what we need most, what we need more than anything else is to know how it is we're supposed to live given the reality that we find ourselves in, right? Because this mixture that we just read about in our text for today, if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention, if we're not alert to it, if we're not alert to its effects, it really can overtake us and destroy us. Because hear me, friends, a church that presumes on commendable things and does not repent of catastrophic things will be a church that finds itself at war with Jesus. That's not me saying that. I, I didn't come up with that. that. That's the words of Jesus. That's him. That's his warning to us. And it's a warning that we must heed this morning. So I want to give you three exhortations for the church of Christ in this present evil age. And with these exhortations, I want you to see this morning that when we turn away from the mixture, and when we turn to the master, when we turn to Jesus, he brings triumph from times of temptation. This is what he does. This is his way. He takes the temptations that we face in this present evil age, and he turns them into a glorious, glorious triumph. So let's dig into our text together, and let's consider these three exhortations. The first exhortation is to follow the Lamb. Follow the Lamb. Look back at verse 13 for a moment. Jesus says in this verse, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you haven't denied the faith. You didn't even do this in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So if the reality of this present evil age could be felt anywhere, it was felt in the city of Pergamum. Two times in this verse, Jesus mentions the startling reality that Pergamum was a throne and a dwelling of Satan. So in the mind of, of Jesus, this city, this location stood out as a hotbed of satanic activity. And Jesus would know, right? I mean, he had walked among this same satanic activity in his own earthly life and ministry. He had gone out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is why he can say, I know where you dwell. I know. The kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about here, it's a firsthand kind of knowing. It's not just that Jesus knows their geographical location. He knows where Pergamum is on a map. 
No, what Jesus is talking about is an experiential kind of knowing. He knows what it's like to dwell in this kind of environment. He can say, I've been to the wilderness and I know what it's like. And the city of Pergamum, much like the wilderness, was hostile territory. The Christians in Pergamum were living their daily lives in a spiritually dangerous environment. It's like what Frodo was told in the Fellowship of the Ring. It is a dangerous business walking out your front door. That's how it really was for Christ followers in this city. For them, the everyday Christian life, it, it felt like dangerous business. Because Satan had painted a target on their back. He was wielding incredible power and influence in their midst. And and it was all for a purpose. It was all for the express purpose of putting pressure on the church to deny the faith that they had received. In fact, this pressure was so great that there was one member of the church who had even been killed. Here in verse 13, Jesus mentions Antipas, who had been put to death for his faith in Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is that Antipas is the only martyr who is mentioned by name in the entire book of Revelation. This book, the book of Revelation, it says a lot about martyrdom. It says a lot about those who are, who, whose lives were taken for the sake of the gospel, but there is only one martyr who has the honor of being named by Jesus. There's only one who is memorialized in this book of Holy Scripture. It's Antipas, the faithful witness who went to his grave not giving in, right? not caving to the pressure, not shrinking back, but confessing. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what all of this tells us is that, man, Pergamum was a hard place to be a Christ follower. It was a dangerous place. It was a hostile place. It was probably the last place in the world that you would ever want to plant a church. But even still, God was faithful. God placed witnesses In this difficult place, he saw to it that there were believers in Pergamum of all places who were willing to follow Jesus and who were willing to follow him even to death. And this brings up an important question, raises a question that we need to answer today. Do we share their willingness? Do we share their willingness in the midst of opposition? In the midst of being hated for our witness. In the midst of the heat of the moment of temptation. Are we willing to follow Jesus? Even if it means making the ultimate sacrifice. Are we willing to endure the highest costs that we can imagine. So that the lamb who was slain might receive the reward of his sufferings. Or. When it comes to following him. Are there some things in your life that you're simply keeping off the table? Seriously, ask yourself, am I holding back parts of my life from Jesus? Like Jesus, you can 
You can have all these things, but don't go messing with this stuff. Right? Jesus, I'll give you a few hours of my week, but, but don't go meddling with my family. Don't go meddling with my job. Jesus, I'll show up to church, I'll smile, I'll sing the songs, I'll even drop a few dollars in the offering, but don't make me deal with my past. Don't make me deal with my bitterness, my hurt, my shame. Friends, is, is, that, is that happening in your heart? Have you been noticing about that about yourself lately? I mean, here's the thing. I'll tell you. Sometimes my fear for Christians like us, Christians who know a lot about the Bible and know a lot about theology, sometimes I fear that we can talk a great theology of the cross. Right? We can talk substitutionary atonement all day long. But all the while, we can be talking about those things while avoiding what the cross really demands from us. What does it demand? Isaac Watts, the hymn writer. In his hymn, The Wondrous Cross, he says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, it would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing. Love so divine. The love of the cross demands my soul, my life, my all. I could not put it better myself. Friends, when we are nailed to a cross with Jesus, he does not spare any part of us. Nothing about the Christian life remains uncrucified. There's nothing about your life in Christ that the cross will not touch. Because when Jesus called you to follow him, the invitation was for you to come and die. The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to follow the lamb? Are we willing to follow him just like Antipas did? Like no mixture, no exceptions, no equivocations, just the cross and the cross alone. So that's the first exhortation. Follow the lamb. Here's the second. Flee from compromise. Flee from compromise. We want to follow Jesus for the rest of our days. If the spirit is living within us, we have that desire living within us. We want to follow him even to our death so that we can one day hear his commendation of us. We get to hear him say one day, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. I look forward to that day. I hope you do too. But here's the thing about all of that. Along the way, as we follow Jesus, there will be temptations. There will be temptations to compromise. Now sometimes, compromise can be good. There are good kinds of compromise. Anyone who has been married for a while will tell you that one of the keys to a successful marriage is willingness to compromise. But there are also other kinds of compromise. There are times when compromise can be a very bad thing. And sadly, the kind of compromise we find in Pergamum was the bad kind. 
It was the bad kind of compromise. This is what we see in verse 14. Once Jesus had commended those in Pergamum who had been faithful, he then turns to those who were not. And he indicted them. He indicted them for their catastrophic behavior. He indicted them for their compromise. He indicted them for not being like Antipas. For not resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil. But instead, these members of the church in Pergamum, they, they had compromised, right? They had given in to this present evil age. And Jesus mentions two specific ways that they had done this. First, Jesus mentions that they were guilty of eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, for contemporary people like us, the specific nature of this accusation is not exactly apparent. Like, in some ways, I think we understand it, right? Because we know idolatry is bad. But at the same time, it can also be lost on us if we don't know the cultural context surrounding what Jesus is saying. So I think it would be more helpful for us to fully appreciate how common this practice was in the ancient world, this, this practice of eating food sacrificed to idols. Here's how it often worked. When people visited their local pagan temple, they would bring gifts. They would bring some sort of food as a way of offering sacrifice to the god or goddess of that temple. And a pagan priest there in the temple would take that offering and he would use a portion of it for the offering. But then he would take the rest of the food and he would sell it for profit. And this is how the pagan temples and their priests remained funded. And because pretty much everyone in a city like Pergamum was hanging out at a pagan temple, a lot of the food that was bought and sold and served had passed through the hands of a pagan priest. And so you can see how food of this kind was not at all easy to avoid. It was everywhere. It was in the marketplace. It was in the homes of your family and friends. You would encounter it at a business dinner. I mean, in all likelihood, the believers there in Pergamum could not go a single day without a meal involving food that had been sacrificed to idols. It would have been a huge temptation for them. They would have felt immense pressure to just go with the flow, right, of the, the religion and the culture around them. And this wasn't just an issue in Pergamum. This was also an issue for the early church more widely. Like, for instance, in Acts chapter 15, the, the church in Jerusalem sends a letter to the church in Antioch that tells them to abstain from eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And then there's Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians where he spends three whole chapters telling the church in Corinth to stop this form of idolatry. Just goes to show, it's a serious problem. A serious issue for the early church. I mean, if you think about it this way, it would be like finding out that one of your fellow church members had been hanging out at a Buddhist temple. Or, or one of your fellow church members had been exploring the church of Scientology. Right? We would look at that and we would say, hey, hold on. That's not okay. Right? That, that's compromise. You, you can't claim to be a Christian on one hand and then be involved in these other kinds of things. That's not going to work. That's exactly what Jesus 
is calling out here. It's like he's saying, you can't feast on my body and blood and communion and then go around feasting on all this food that is used for antichrist purposes. Those two things cannot coexist. They are fundamentally incompatible. This also brings up the other issue that Jesus mentions. The issue of sexual immorality. Believe it or not, these two things were actually related. The food being served at these meals, these pagan meals, it wasn't the only problem with the meals. Another problem was that these meals were places where people engaged in all sorts of sexually deviant behavior. All all sorts of lewd things would happen at these meals. Just listen to what one commentator says. This commentator notes that women were brought to these meals to provide entertainment. And this often led to sexual activity. There is therefore a close connection between the twin sins of eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. In fact, these two things are also linked in the story that Jesus alludes to in verse 14. The story of Balaam and Balak. In the book of Numbers back in the Old Testament. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Maybe you've read it or studied it. But maybe you're not familiar with it. The story goes that when the Israelites were coming to the end of their journey through the wilderness. They arrived at the plains of Moab. And the king of Moab whose name was Balak. He did not like this one bit. He, He was upset that there was this giant nation of people that had just showed up on his doorstep. So Balak decides to do something about this. He seeks out the help of a false prophet named Balaam. And Balak asks Balaam to pronounce a curse over Israel so that they would be destroyed. And so Balaam tries his best to do this. He tries to curse Israel multiple times, but he can't. Like he he could not do it. The God of Israel had stopped the mouth of Balaam From pronouncing the words of this curse. The curse would not leave his mouth. Because God would only permit him to speak words of blessing over the people of Israel. And so in a last ditch effort to get their way. Balak and Balaam pull out all the stops. They gather together the most beautiful women in Moab. And they send them into the camp of the Israelites. And the men of Israel joined these Moabite women in doing the same thing that the Christians in Pergamum are doing. Eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. And so Jesus says, I have this against you. This is my complaint that just like the children of Israel did in the wilderness, so you too, church in Pergamum, you have also compromised. Jesus also says, You've, there are some among you who have linked arms with the Nicolaitans. You might remember them from a couple weeks ago. Let me refresh your memory on who the Nicolaitans were. They were a group of heretics who left the church in order to pursue a hedonistic, immoral lifestyle in the name of Christian freedom. Earlier in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus. For hating what the Nicolaitans stood for. He says to the Ephesians. You hate their works just like I do. 
Unfortunately, though, the same couldn't be said for the church in Pergamum. There were people in the church of Pergamum who didn't hate the works of the Nicolaitans, but instead they joined the works of the Nicolaitans. And you've got to think that this was because the Nicolaitans gave a nice excuse to Christians who wanted a good reason to compromise. Like you can have Jesus, but you can also have the food sacrificed to idols. You can also have sexual immorality. You can have both of these things and it's okay. That's what the Nicolaitans would have said. Listen, friends, this has not changed. Right? This is still going on today. Right? The world is not any less sinful than it used to be. The flesh is not any less powerful than it used to be. The devil is not working any less than he has at any other point in time in history. Right? This temptation to compromise. This is alive and well for us. It is just as real as it has always been. And so here's the warning I want to give. I want to warn us against the slow creep of compromise. Beware of gradual compromise in your doctrine. Beware of gradual compromise in your conduct. The moment that we see these things happening in our lives, we must decisively flee. We must flee from these things. If not, you know what the enemy will do? He will sink his teeth into us and he will devour us from the inside out. You know, it's interesting that the word Pergamum the name of this city where the, this church was, this is a word that means thoroughly married. And I think that's fitting. It's very fitting because some of the members of this church in Pergamum were married to the world. Right? They had been thoroughly married to the culture and to the religious practices around them. And that determined what kind of church they were. What kind of church are we? I think it's worth asking that. What kind of church are we? What are we thoroughly married to? What kinds of sins are we willing to tolerate? And listen, I don't think that's merely a matter of what we put down on paper. Right? A, a church can have documentation that says all the right things and yet still be a church that compromises. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous preacher, once said, let none of us imagine that an orthodox creed, like the creed we recited earlier, the Nicene Creed, let none of us think that a creed of this kind, an orthodox creed, can be of any use to us if we do not lead an orthodox life. This is why we are always talking about how sound doctrine should produce gospel culture. Right? The, the, what, the, what the church believes ought to determine what the church is like. So what are we like? Does our culture here as a church genuinely reflect what it is that we believe? Or are there sins that we are tolerating here? Are there things that we are allowing to creep in that fly against the face of what it is that we believe? If there are, like if there are things of this kind that we can name in our lives, we need to pay close attention to verse 16. 
is in verse 16, Jesus tells us to repent. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to repent. And then he tells us what will happen if we don't. Like if we don't repent, he will come. This isn't fun or easy to say. He will come and he will make war. In fact, if, if you look back at verse 12, that's how Jesus is describing himself to the church at Pergamum. That's how he wants this church to see him as a warrior with a sword. This actually refers back to chapter 1 from a few weeks back where we learned that Jesus is not only our priest and our king, he is also our prophet. The word of his mouth is a word that comes to us and confronts us about our sin and our idolatry. It's a word that commands us to repent of the compromise that we have allowed to gradually creep into our lives. And if we don't repent, his word is a word that will condemn us. Listen, I know that we don't like to talk about that very much. I know that this is no one's favorite thing to think about. But it's true. It's true. It's even true for those of us who are part of a church that if we will not repent, if our hearts are hardened and calcified against repentance, then we will find ourselves coming under the just, right, and righteous wrath of Jesus Christ. The wages of unrepentant sin are eternal. The stakes could not be higher. It has to be this way. It has to be this way or the gospel message becomes a message without any urgency whatsoever. Like without the reality of God's wrath, the gospel becomes a message that, well, you can just take it or leave it just like any other message. Right? You, could, you could take it, you could leave it. It doesn't really matter because it'll all shake out in the end. But in order for the gospel to be good news, we need warnings like this. Warnings that sober us up. Warnings that jar us. We need the bad news first. We need to hear that the lamb who was slain is also a warrior who will slay by the prophecy of his mouth. And you might say, well, man, I'm not so sure about what you're saying here. I don't know if I buy it because isn't it the, the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But think of it this way. It is a kindness that God would warn us of his severity against unrepentant sin. Jesus is doing us an immense kindness in verse 16, I, I can't think of anything more kind because he's giving us a way to escape from the wrath that is to come upon the ungodly. And that way of escape is repentance. We must flee from compromise. We must repent of compromise so that we may continue in the faith. And that brings me to the third exhortation for today. If you're following the lamb and if you're fleeing from compromise, then I want to tell you that you can be confident that God has promised to you a reward. 
And so I want to exhort you to focus on this reward. Look there at the final verse in our passage, verse 17. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a stone, a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except for the one who received it. Don't you just love how the final word that Christ gives to this church is not a word of judgment. It is a word of promise. I think that tells you so much about his gentle and lowly heart that even after all the ways that we have sinned and made an absolute mess of things, Jesus is still rooting for us. Right? He, he says, I want you to conquer. I want my people to endure. I want my church to share in my victory. That's what Jesus is saying, us, saying to us today. And in order to help us keep going, to endure, to conquer, Jesus promises two rewards in verse 17. The first of these rewards is hidden manna. Hidden manna. If you're familiar at all with the story of the Bible, then you'll recognize right away that manna refers to the food that fed the Israelites during their 40 years in the wilderness. Each day, God would provide for his people by causing manna to rain down from the sky. And and the Israelites, they would go out and they would collect this manna and they would bring it back into their tents. And because of this, they were rescued from starvation. Not once did God's people starve. Not once did they go hungry. And the same is true for you And for me, if we are in Christ, if we belong to him, we will not languish. We will not faint. If we endure, Christ will provide. He fasted in the wilderness so that we might be fed in the wilderness. He will not leave us to starve as we make our way through the barren wastelands of this present evil age. No, he has promised that he will set a table before us in the presence of our enemies so that we may be filled. And the way that he does this, friends, is with hidden manna. What this means is that Christ is offering to feed us with a foretaste of a promised blessing, a future reward, a coming bounty that has not yet been fully revealed. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we can only see our reward through a glass darkly, but by faith, we see it nonetheless. I love the way Hebrews chapter 6 puts it. It says that by faith in Christ, we have tasted the powers of the age that is to come. There is really something of our future reward in Christ that reaches into our present and that gives us what we need to be courageous. It gives us what we need to endure and to stand strong in the face of temptation. And that is what Jesus means by hidden manna. Those in Pergamum didn't need to settle for food sacrificed to idols. No, not when Jesus was offering them hidden manna from heaven. But that's not all. 
Jesus also says to the one who conquers, he will give a white stone. And on this stone will be a name written that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Now, if that leaves you scratching your head a little bit, that leaves you a little bit confused, you're not alone. Okay? That's because it kind of is confusing. The meaning of this, it's not obvious. I'm probably not any less puzzled by this than you are. I mean, in fact, as I was studying for this sermon, I read one scholar who noted that there are probably about a dozen possible interpretations of what Jesus is referring to. This is not clear. Like, the, the, the cultural meaning of this white stone remains elusive for us. But hear me, friends. I want you to hear me when I say, I don't think the spiritual meaning of what Jesus is saying here is hard to see. I think it's very clear. Jesus is promising intimate communion with himself. To the one who conquers, Jesus is offering the ultimate reward. He is offering us the gift of being known personally by him. Right? He says, I'll give you a name that no one knows except for the one who receives it. This is something that will be just between you and Jesus. I mean, what, what, what Jesus is doing here is he is promising to bring us into his closest confidence. I mean, think of what that means. Like, think of what it means when, when you bring somebody in, into your confidence, right? You are creating a, a circle of trust and of intimacy between you and that other person. But what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's moving toward us and he's saying, I want that with you. I want that personal communion. I want that intimacy with you where you know that I am yours and you are mine. And so friends, I'm, I'm curious. I wonder what your response to that is. I wonder what's going through your mind. If it's true that we, just like the church in Pergamum, a mixture of things that please the Lord and things that don't please him, then we have a decision to make. And it's a decision that we have to make together as a church. Do we really want communion with Christ? Or are we going to settle for compromise? Do, Do we really long with all our hearts to hear his commendation of us? Or are we going to keep flirting with catastrophe? I think... The choice is quite simple. We need simply to choose Jesus once again. We need to lay hold of him as our reward. Friends, ultimately our reward is not a more desirable set of circumstances for our lives. Our reward is not feeling better about where our life is headed. Our reward is not even escaping from the wrath that is to come. It's not even avoiding God's judgment. No, ultimately, our reward is a person. It is a person who is offering himself to us today if we will only look to him in faith. In fact, that's that's what we get to do as we come to this communion table together. We get to receive some of the hidden manna that we've been talking about. Now, in the eyes of the world, the elements on this table, it just looks like bread and juice bought from the store. But there is much more going on here at this table than meets the eye. There is a future reality hidden at this table that it takes faith to perceive. 
It takes faith to perceive that in this bread that we're receiving, we are receiving the body of Christ broken for us. It takes faith to receive that in the cup, we are receiving the blood of Jesus poured out from us. It takes faith to receive that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, what we're doing is we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, what is hidden right now will be revealed at long last. We will no longer see through a glass darkly. We will see him face to face. We will behold him and we will become like him as we do that because we will be seeing him as he truly is. Here's the thing. If you don't, if you're not confident that that's the future that is awaiting you in Christ, like if you're not believing in the Jesus that you have heard proclaimed in this gathering today, then we ask you to abstain from coming to this table. Please do not come forward because without faith, there is no glory hidden for you. Like I said, this is just bread and juice, just groceries. So instead of coming to the table, would you carefully consider, consider what you have heard today and what you are witnessing right now? You are witnessing the church of Jesus Christ declaring and displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to plead with you to believe in what we are declaring and displaying. Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sin. That means turn from your sin and turn toward Christ in faith. Trust in him. Call upon his name and be saved. And he will deliver you from this present evil. He will deliver you from the world, the flesh, and the devil. For those of us who have been delivered, I want to invite you to come. We'll begin here in the front row. We'll move successively to each row behind that until we reach the back of the room. You can just come down this aisle, walk around the front, make your way to the table where you will be served the elements. Would you just kind of help us stay organized and help us with traffic flow by doing that? But before we come, what I want to do is I just want us to go before the Lord in prayer. Let's continue to lift our hearts to him. So would you bow your head with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that there are all kinds of ways that we've gotten mixed up. It's an evidence of your grace that throughout this church and throughout our lives, there are all sorts of things that please you. There are all sorts of things that you delight in. But we also blush to think that there are also things that are unworthy of you. It grieves us. To be confronted with that today. Lord we know we've compromised. Right? We, we've, we've let things into our hearts. That have no business in your church. Would you lead us to repentance Lord? By your kindness draw us near. And open our hearts so that we might experience new depths of communion with you. Jesus do this now within us as we come to your table. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, come to the feast. Your Jesus is waiting for you.